You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Forefront. Happy uh, last week of summer before kids go back to school and Labor Day weekend hits us next weekend. Uh, we're glad that you're able to be here uh, and to be enjoying this series that we're in on the sacraments. Uh, so some of you may be joining us for the first time or maybe you haven't been following the rest of the series. So just to kind of catch us all up a little bit too, what is a sacrament? Uh, Josh Scott describes this as a place for the divine and the holy meet everyday life. Um, I just realized I forgot to do something that I always tell myself to do, and I write it, and I literally highlight it at the top of my paper, which is, tell people who you are. Because um, we have visitors, we have people who are visiting us all the time, and Pastor Reverend Benita does such a good job at this, and I'm like, I need to be more mindful of that, and so thank you for that invitation. Um, I am Reverend Josh Lee, I'm one of the co-pastors of Teaching and Community here at Forefront. So one of the reasons that, the, that, that I think this sacrament series is really important because, is because I believe that finding the ordinary in, or finding the divine in the ordinary is really important. Our bodies, we have many of us, different traditions, we've been taught that our bodies are bad, right, and our spirits are good, and that God doesn't show up in these bodies because we're at war with these bodies. Have you ever grew up with some theology like that? And I think that sacraments, they invite us to see God in the things that often people discard or say that we're at war against. For, for instance, food often, right? We're at war often with food. Like, what's the good food for our body? Or how much can we consume or not consume? And the dieting model, right? And so it's an invitation to be able to see when we take communion, God in the ordinary, God in these good gifts, right? It's an invitation that when we experience baptism, that it's a, it's a sensation of our bodies, of how God shows up in the physical world as a symbol of God's interactions with us. So we see God through art. We see God through music. We see God through the anointing of oil on our foreheads, which, which brings this arousal of senses and smells. And so it's, a, it's an interaction. The sacraments are an interaction with our physical world, the things around us, to help us see God and experience God in unique ways. Um, and I think that I think that God can show up in some really unexpected ways. God often shows the extraordinary is often found in the ordinary. And I think that sometimes within religion, we think that God is just this abstract thing or God's the ooh, ah, ooh, spooky stuff, right? And it's like, no, maybe God is actually just in you and me. Maybe God is actually in the trees we see outside and God is actually in the food that we eat and the relationships that we, can, that we, that we both give to and give back out of. Like, God doesn't have to be the things that are outside of us. God can be the things that are right in us and right in front of us. And so this series is really important, I think, for that reason, because it calls us back to think about those ways, that how does God show up, not just in the seven sacraments of the church historically, but in the church, but in our lives as a whole. So some of the sacraments that um, we'll be talking about in the series, we'll be talking about communion, confession, those are for the next two weeks. We talk, we've talked about anointing of the sick, marriage, holy orders, baptism, and today we will be talking about confirmation. So I'm curious, how many of you went through a religious church tradition where you went through confirmation? Raise your hand if that was true of you. 
Okay, so yeah, so maybe about a dozen of you who went through that experience of confirmation. So for other, others of you who did not go through confirmations, you may be like, what is that? What is going on with that? So let me just quickly define what is confirmation. Confirmation is, in essence, it's an initiation and preparation process for the faith. Let me compare it next to the evangelical tradition and the mainline tradition. I would love for you to look at this little, this pretty little flow chart that I created. Um, so if you grew up in the evangelical tradition, then most likely when you were a child, they dedicated you, meaning they prayed over you, they anointed your head with oil, and, they, and the church and your parents were like, we will raise our child to know Jesus. And then eventually you become a teenager or maybe 10 or 11 or something. All these different religious traditions within the evangelical have different standards. And you are invited to accept Jesus into your heart. Accept and follow Christ. Usually at this point, you're allowed to then take communion for the very first time. And then the next response is for you to then be led towards water baptism. So this is usually the track that's led for conversion within Christianity. Now, um, and then of course, if you, do, if you don't grow up in the church and you convert later, then you skip the child dedication. You go right to accept Jesus, take communion, and get baptized. Now, in the mainline Protestant traditions, as well as in Catholicism, this is what they do. So they baptize the child as an infant. So there's no dedication. You're baptized. It basically, it's a pronouncement like you are a loved, beloved child of God. There's nothing you can say or do that's ever going to change that. Nothing that you need to decide to be loved and beloved as a child of God. Some Catholics would also say at this moment that this is the moment that you are saved. Okay? So then when you become, the ages vary within these different traditions, but this is usually a time of adolescence. You then affirm your faith. How do you affirm your faith, though? You go through a thing called confirmation. And in the, Protestant, in the mainline Protestant church and in the Catholic church, this is usually a series of classes. So you go through this for like a quarter. And you show up like on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, and you learn about like, here's the theology of, the, of our Christian faith. Here's where it all came from. Here's why we believe what we believe. Here's our history. Um, this is what it looks like in our life, in our church, or maybe in our faith and religion as a whole. So you learn all of this as an adolescent, and then you have a big decision to make. You have a decision, okay, I was baptized into this faith, I've been raised around this stuff, do I want to believe this? Do I want to affirm this? Do I want to accept this for myself? And if you say yes, then you have this big ceremony called confirmation, where everyone in your confirmation class shows up, and they make these vows and commitments, they affirm their faith, they affirm their baptism, and they commit to following this new faith that they have come to grow up in and have now come to deeply understand. You know, does, does this kind of make sense? And then, once you go for, for through confirmation in that class, you receive communion for the very first time. But, in the Roman Catholic Church, before you can receive the communion, you have to confess your sins. All right, so this is why it's usually not until adolescence, because they call it in the Catholic Church, you have to have a, uh, uh, um, the time of reason. So basically, it's the belief that you can reason through enough to know right and wrong, and that's when you can go through confirmation, so that you can then explain to the priest, here are the things I did wrong. I pushed my sister down the stairs. I told my mom X, Y, Z. I cheated on my little test to the guy next to me in class, right? And so you, 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 you confess your sins, and they go, okay, you understand right and wrong, and then the Catholic Church will give you communion. Now, that looks very different than the mainline tradition, mainline Protestant tradition, because we don't believe in confessional to a priest. We believe in confessing to one another or confessing to God, and so this can play out in different ways within that tradition. So does this kind of make sense? 
to see these sort of different tracks and experiences of coming in and being initiated in the faith. And I personally don't think either of these are completely wrong or there's one right way or one right way. I think there's something really beautiful in both traditions. I think there's something for us to learn and to grapple with in both spaces. Now, I did not grow up in Catholic mainline Protestant tradition. I grew up in the evangelical tradition, so I followed all of the steps. And then, when I left the evangelical tradition because I wasn't accepted for my sexuality, I went on over to Red Rover, Red Rover, send the Pentecostal right over, and I came <laughs> on over to the mainline Protestants, and they were like, hey, welcome, we've been waiting for you. And, I, and they're like, we affirm all of you. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you. And they're like, but we, you need to know what you're getting into. So, you know, they, basically I went through this, you know, the course, the class. I understood what this new faith was. I accepted, they call it a polity class when you're an adult. And I decided, yes, okay, this is a faith that I want to be a part of. It was really helpful for me to learn about the history of my religion and not just be told, like, how, like the end result, but tell me, like, how do we get here, Right? Um, it was really a beautiful invitation. And so my very first experience was in the United Methodist Church. I served as an associate pastor there, and I uh, uh, watched some, uh, what they call them as confirmands, uh, go through confirmation class. And so these were the confirmands for the very first year as they affirmed their faith and decided they wanted to follow uh, this religion that they had come to learn and to grow. And for me, when I was really young, um, I knew at like five years old that I wanted to be a pastor uh, but I don't think I had the words for it. I just like would come home and act it out and like baptize Barney in, in, the, in, in the bathtub and things like this, and he would just dry. He'd take forever to dry out. Um, and, but, then, but then when I was like, so that was like at five, I decided I wanted to get baptized as the pastor at this little storefront Pentecostal church told my grandma and everybody that we were going to the quarry after church today to get baptized. And I told my grandma, I'm like, we're going to go. And so at five years old, I got baptized in the quarry, um, uh, but then at 9, we stopped going to church, and at 12, we started going back to church again. And it really, I was like, it was like a second love. I like fell in love all over again. I really, really hated sports, and I was not connecting with the arts. But I went to church, and I'm like, this is my jam. Like, this is where I belong. Like, this is where I fit. This is what I love. And so I would just shadow the pastor all the time, the children's pastor. And when I was 13 years old, the pastor said, you know, I think that you've been shadowing me for a while now, for one year, and I really think that, that, you know, it's clear that you love Jesus and you're dedicated to the work of the church. Would you like to preach the Sunday sermon in, in the main service? 13 years old. And so there should be a picture of this. And so I, <laughs> so this was my first sermon. I was preaching at 13 years old, which Pentecostal, remember, Pentecostal, I can still do it. Um, and this is why I paced the stage, okay, because this is the tradition I grew up in. And so there's this, there, there was this sort of beauty of thinking about it. I was just, as I was writing this sermon, I'm like 13 years old, first started, it was my first start of preaching. This year I celebrate 20 years of preaching, that means. Now, my church did not have a formal process of confirmation, right? Like, I didn't have a class I had to go through. There wasn't this vows that I took. But in the evangelical tradition, while it was, an, it was a very informal process, they gave me pivotal moments throughout my life for me to own my faith, for me to take responsibility for it, for me to decide what I wanted to do and if I, what, I, what I wanted to make of it. And honestly, I don't think if the pastor had invited me at 13 to preach that I, and if I hadn't have interned and served and worked in every ministry of the church for all my teens, I don't know if I would have really realized like, that this was my, my space, my place in the world that I loved and wanted to give my life to. And so it, it really propelled me to make my own decisions. 
And so whatever track or tradition you grew up in, what I want to say is that our faith gives us invitations at different points to affirm and confirm our journey in it, our complicity in it, our belief in it, our trust and our commitment to it. And so we're all sort of on this journey. But what I would love for us to, to think about, particularly when we think about this sacrament, is a little bit of, of like, how did we get here? How did we get to this place of these different traditions and faith of how we affirm in our certain processes? Because I really think there is something beautiful about things happening naturally like they did for me without like a class. But I also think there was something really beautiful about like people sitting down and explaining and asking questions and giving me the choice to how I'm, if I was going to affirm following a faith or not. There's something beautiful about, I think, both of those traditions and what they offer us. So what I would love to just kind of highlight really quickly is kind of some history, right? This is what we've done a lot in this series. And I think that we've done it because we think it's important that as we all are in our own deconstruction or reconstruction process, as we're all trying to figure out how to own our own faith, it is important for us to know the history of our church. And that doesn't just mean Protestantism. That means all the way back to Catholicism and the early church. So how, how did um, baptism and confirmation and all of these processes of initiation of faith, how did they play out in, in the early church in the beginning? Well, in the beginning, people were converting at all of these different stages of their journey, right? I mean, this new religion comes on the scene. And so there is no, like, confirmation class in the beginning in the early church. So in the, for the first two centuries, and there should be a little, like, you know, another flowchart. Um, for the first two centuries, we don't see a confirmation class. Instead, we see, like, as, as, as Reverend Vanita highlighted last week, at, usually at Easter time, all of these things would happen at once. Baptism would occur, so this is what they would do. It's like a one-stop shop, okay? You would get baptized, boom. Then they, you would come out, they would put you in a white robe, they would anoint your head with oil, but one of the bishops, and then you would receive communion for the first time. Boom, you're done, you're converted, you're part of the faith, Okay? Now, when it says adult confirmation, what I mean by that is that, that this was the process of confirmation. There was no class. There was no education. The religion had just started, okay? And, and, and so this is kind of how this worked. Uh, then as time went on, if you were raised in the church, you still were baptized in as an infant, they taught you, so forth. Let's go to the next slide. By the third century, this is greatly inf influenced by Constantine because all of a sudden religion, Christianity, becomes united with Rome. It is the state religion. So basically, everybody needs to get on board with Christianity. And so people are just born into this. This is the acceptable religion and faith. And so we all know what happens when the church and, and the state decide to get in bed together. Not great. Um, and so you have a very similar process here. But what's, what ends up happening is the church starts exploding and growing. So they can't anoint people with oil anymore because guess whose responsibility it was to anoint people with oil? The bishop, the guy at the very top, and I do say guy for a reason, because it was only men that were allowed, unfortunately. And so, because the bishop couldn't be at every Easter service to, to be able to baptize, or to be able to anoint everybody, they're like, let's just cut the anointing out, okay? The priest can just baptize and give people their communion. So, let's go to the next slide. Eventually, we get to the point in the 5th century... When the church begins to decide, you know what, we're going to baptize infants, but at 10 years of age, they can begin to go through confirmation class, they can learn about the faith, they can confess their sins, they can receive communion for the first time. And you have a very similar process, again, for adults who are converting. The next slide, please. Please. <laughs> That's it. Great. So... 
basically where we end where, where we end ourselves here is in the is where we are in the 19th century so the church stayed very similar how they had these practices from the 5th to the 19th century the 19th century though we begin to see this shift just a little bit um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting oh can you actually go back to that 5th century slide because I skipped a fun fact that I think is amazing um, so in the 5th century as well they decided that they wanted to bring back the anointing of the oil thing after you got, this is so great, are you ready for this? I just like, this is, gonna, this is like worth the price of admissions, <laughs> which is free, right? Right, right, yes. So, so they, they decide that after you get baptized and they give you communion for the first time, instead of anointing you with oil, they would give you a gentle slap across the face. Why did they do this? Well, this is during the time of the Middle Ages. So when you were baptized into the faith, uh, later, this is what they believed in the Middle Ages, right? You were baptized in the faith. You became what was called a soldier of Christ. So this was when religion, when Christianity decided, like, we were going to go to war. We were going to fight people and make them convert, and we were going to take land, and in the name of God, we were going to do this. So everybody's getting baptized into this religion as soldiers, and they thought a little gentle slap prepared you for the battle. Prepared you for the battle ahead. Crazy, right? I mean, what in the world? So I would just love for us to live into this tradition this morning. So as you, as you come forward for communion, we will slap a little Jesus into you or the little devil out of you. And, and, and we are going to just like live into our tradition, all right? Um, I'm teasing. Please don't, don't ask for to be slapped this morning when you come forward. <laughs> Where's my slap? So... Yes, so this is, this is sort of the, the, the evolution of this, of, this, uh, of this tradition. Now, I also just want to say that within evangelicalism, which, mind you, has really, has really only been around for a couple hundred years, uh, you know, mainline tradition, 500 years for Protestantism after we broke off from the Catholics, but us evangelicals and non-denominationals, like, we've only been around for, like, a little less than 100 years. Like, it has not been that long. And, and in that tradition, we kind of have, we kind of come up with our own stuff as well. Like, we just created the age of accountability. Remember this? It was like, well, this is the age when you have to accept Jesus because you know what right and wrong is. And if you don't accept Jesus by this age and you die, you're going to hell. And it was just like, whoa, this is, this is intense. We, that's not in the Bible. We just literally created, like, well, we think the age cutoff is probably 12. Um, like, that's, you start growing hair under your armpits. Like, that's it. That's when... That's it. That's, that's when you are age of accountability and you're going to be judged in hell if you don't accept God. But there was also, even though we, even though we don't believe this level of uh, confessing our sins to priests, we still really pressed into confessing our sins to one another. And so there's even this element within evangelicalism where people were called and told to like, come up before the church and to like, confess publicly things that they had done wrong and the church had to forgive them. And so while there are things within maybe mainline traditions of Protestantism or within Catholicism that maybe we don't agree with or we don't see, I want us to know that also within evangelicalism there are traditions and practices that sometimes are incredibly problematic. And so I think that where we find ourselves as a church is asking ourselves this deep question. What does it look like for us to own our faith now? as people who are trying to usher in the next 500 years of Christianity, as people who are trying to, to define a new progressive faith that both honors our traditions and our past, but also looks to the future, I think we have to ask ourselves, how do we own our faith? What do we do with it? What does this sacrament teach us about our faith? Eventually, I think that this sacrament of confirmation, it has become a way in which some of us have learned about the faith that we've converted to, and we've chosen to commit, and in effect, it gives us strength for the journey ahead.
So two things. What relevance does this sacrament have for us today? What relevance does it have? The first one is this. I think that it helps us to learn and live out our faith. Um, many Christians throughout history have had, to, ha, have, have had to sort of grapple with what our history and with our faith and with what we believe. And I, and I think more than that, I think we've all had to sort of wrestle with where we stand uh, in relation to it, both owning our past and our history and the people that have come before us while also looking forward to the future. So how do we live out and own our own faith? Uh, somebody, I can't remember, I couldn't remember exactly who it was, but somebody at some point preached here at church and they shared about how all of the trees, root systems, are deeply connected with one another. And how like while above the surface it seems like all these individual trees exist, when you look underneath the surface, these trees are literally communicating with one another. Like, I need more oxygen, I need more water, I need more X, Y, Z. And they're, and they're literally thriving together. They're all interly connected. And I want us to think about our interdenominal faith in this same way, that we are interconnected and interdependent upon all those who've come before us and all of those Christian traditions that still exist today. We cannot separate ourselves or say, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. Well, reality is, is we still came from those kinds of Christians. We cannot disregard that and tell people that what then happened in those other traditions don't matter. We're all connected. We all come out of the same well. All of our roots are tied up in one another. And all of those trees and all those branches, whether certain branches bursted forth 500 years ago or 1,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago, we all literally still sit at the same base of that tree. And we all still share the same root. And we're all still dependent upon one another. And so we can't just disregard. We must learn how to chew on the meat and spit out the bones. We must talk about our dirty past as, well, as while we paint a picture of our hopeful, beautiful future that I believe this church is called to be a part of. There's a really beautiful church here in, here in, the, in the city in Park Slope. It's called Old Reform. You may have walked past it before. They have these beautiful stained glass windows in, in the church. It looks just like this. This is pictures of that church. One of my <laughs> colleagues uh, who pastors this church was telling me how their church went on a several-year a commission where there was a whole group of people that decided they wanted to find out who were the enslaved individuals that paid for these windows. What I mean by that is that the Cortellu family bought one of these windows, but the Cortellu family got their wealth on the backs of enslaved individuals who they enforced into slavery right here in Brooklyn. So the money they had to put that window in was not because of any work they had done, but because of the oppression that they had caused. And so this church had a commission several years where they just dug into the history to find as many names and as much information about these enslaved individuals as they could as possible. And they placed these plaques at the bottoms of all of the windows with a small QR code that people could then scan that would then take them to information that with any information they could find about the individuals who were enslaved by those who paid for this window. I thought this was really a beautiful moment to both say, Let's not, we don't have to rip the windows out of our church. We don't have to pretend like this didn't happen or ignore it or not talk about it. But instead, let's grapple with it. Let's actually do the work. Let's find out 
what the story is here and what the stories are and what happened. And let us make sure that for generations to generations, as they walk past these windows, they don't just look at white Jesus in the window, but they scan the QR code and they read the names and they find out what is the story behind how these windows got to where they are. Let us be a church full of QR codes. Let us be a church that people can come to and that we can talk about and grapple with our past, but also realize that we need to figure out how to move forward and live better in the future. I think that this sacrament invites us to look at our past and figure out what is the faith we want to own for the future. The second thing that I think this sacrament invites us to do, and the second and the last thing, is it invites us to reconcile and reform our faith. To reconcile and reform our faith. In my last church, I remember uh, somebody who started coming to worship. And eventually, after they had attended for a while, they shared with me how hard it was for them to come back to church. They shared with me the very first Sunday they decided to come to church. They got in their car and they started driving. And about halfway there, they were just in a cold sweat. And they turned around and went back home. They said, I'll try again next Sunday. And the next Sunday they came, they pulled into the parking lot, and they had a panic attack. And they said, I'll try again next Sunday. They came back the next Sunday again, and they walked into the church after the first song, sat on the back row, last, left before the last song was gone, done. Some of you in the balcony, I know, I know you do that. <laughs> and then they just decided to sort of slip out without having to contact because they were slowly tapping their foot back into church. And then the next Sunday, they decided, I need a break. That was overstimulating. And so they took a few more Sundays off, and then they came back again. And this time, during the meet and greet, they didn't dart to the bathroom. Instead, they introduced themselves to somebody with their chosen name. And they heard that person say to them their chosen name and their pronouns. And they said, that was the first time I'd ever in a church heard my chosen name articulated to me. And that when I offered my pronouns, that person offered their pronouns back to normalize what I had just done. And somebody just this last week here in the church said that when Reverend Vanita was up here last week and she opened one of her sermons with her pronouns, which I failed to do when I gave my intro at the start of this sermon, <laughs> even though I wrote it down, <laughs> that that was healing for them because that was the first time they had heard somebody do that and they knew this was a church for them. The slow journey back for this person back to church was hard and it was fraught and it was triggering and it was challenging. But they knew that this was a faith that they would never be able to escape from because it was so a part of them, even though the people who were a part of it had hurt them so deeply. And while it was a long and hard journey for them to come back to church, I am so grateful that I got to be a part of their story and that they chose to trust us again. And I'll never forget the Sunday, and I'm not going to show their picture because I didn't ask for their permission to share the story, that I got to baptize them using their chosen name. And how healing that was for them to say, I am reaffirming and reconstructing and reconciling my faith again. And I anointed their head with oil, and I gave them communion for the first time in many years. And they said, it feels so good to be home. So church, as we wrap up this sermon, and as we begin to wrap up this series with just two more weeks left, I want to invite us this morning to maybe reassess our own faith journey. 
reassess our wounds from the past, and, re- and then reimagine what we hope for our faith to look like in the future, both personally and collectively. Many of us grew up in traditions where we individually made decisions, but I want you to know that's important, but also we are a part of a larger whole. You are not in this alone. And so I'm going to invite us this morning to be able to read aloud some of the, the liturgy that is often read during confirmation as our, our liturgy this morning. Uh, this is often what confirmands read as after they've gone through their course and they've decided to affirm their faith. And I would love, what I love about this is that not just the confirmands read it aloud, but the co- entire congregation reads it with them. Because they're basically saying, we will journey with you. And when there are things in this that you do not believe or you do not understand, we will believe with you. We will stand alongside you. And the beauty of this is, is that none of us are ever going to believe all of it, and none of us are ever going to live it all perfectly. And that's okay. That's okay. That's part of the journey. So I invite us to stand this morning. And as you stand, um, I'm going to read the, 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 the line that you'll see, and then you, if you agree, you will respond back, I will with God's help. Uh, and if you feel like you're at a point when you're like, I just don't know if I can affirm that or that's not where I'm at, that's okay. You can read every other line. You can skip a line. You can just sit and listen to folks read because guess what? We're here to meet you wherever you are on your journey. Um, but know that as you hear all of our voices read, read aloud together, those are the voices of the people who are going to help you reconcile and reform your faith as a community. Amen? Amen. So church, will you continue in the apostles' teachings and fellowship in communion and in prayers, I will with God's help. Will you preserve in resisting, will you persevere in resisting evil both individually and systemically? I will. Will you proclaim by God's word the example of the good news of God in Christ? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? And will you strive for justice and peace amongst all people and respect the dignity of human beings? Church, with God's help, may we keep showing up. May we keep wrestling with this faith as we strive to learn and to live out and to reconcile and reform this faith that is so deeply a part of all of our stories. May the story continue, and may you keep writing it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite us now to come and receive communion and not a slap. Uh, the <laughs> bread is gluten-free in solidarity with those who are um, gluten-free. And <laughs> it's funny because I mix it up. It's also the, the juice is, is juice instead of wine in solidarity with those who are in recovery. For those of you who are, who are visiting us this morning, I mix those up. So we're in solidarity with everybody this morning. And we hope that you will come and receive these elements and know that you don't have to go through any steps or any processes to receive this communion from us today. All you have to do is just want to receive the love. So come forward now and receive these elements of God's love and God's grace as physical symbols in your life. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.